There aren't many things that people agree on in Washington, D.C., but as our nation's capital experiences a crime crisis like no other, there is one thing that brings people together on both sides of the aisle, a proposal by the District of Columbia's City Council. Despite the mayor's veto, the District of Columbia's City Council passed a revised criminal code act, a dangerous bill that would embolden criminals, dramatically increase crime and violence, and render police officers in the District of Columbia virtually powerless to adequately police the city and keep its residents and visitors safe. The RCCA eliminates mandatory minimum sentencing for all crimes, drastically reduces the maximum penalties for crimes such as carjacking and eliminates complice liability for felony murder. Thankfully, for the District of Columbia to pass such a drastic piece of legislation, it requires congressional approval, and a fraternal order police is fighting back. Today we're joined by one of them, Greg Pemberton, Chairman of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department's Labor Committee. Greg represents more than 3,600 rank-and-file D.C. Metropolitan Police officers who go to work every day to serve and protect those who live in our nation's capital. I'm Patrick Hughes, National President of Fraternal Order Police, and this is The Blue View. Well, Greg, welcome back to The Blue View. Uh, I know you've been here before, and a lot of our listeners know you, but uh, for those that might be tuning in for the first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pat. My name is Greg Pemberton. Uh, I represent uh, 3,500 police officers from the Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, That's all officers, detectives, and sergeants that work for the MPD here in the District of Columbia. Um, I've been in this position for uh, about three and a half years now, and uh, I really have... uh, We've really had a tough time over the past um, you know, couple of years dealing with uh, city council, dealing with COVID, dealing with police reform. Um, so we've had our challenges cut out for them, and uh, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to fight for, the, for these men and women here at MPD. Yeah, I, I tell you, it's a, it's the last, uh, especially the last two, three years have been mo- most difficult. COVID and then all of the, uh, you know, all of the police reform and unrest that has occurred and really has kind of transformed our whole industry. But uh, last time you were here, we talked about the crime here in D.C. Uh, it was just raging. It was, you know, it was an unprecedented numbers. Uh, homicides were up 20 percent, carjackings up 25 percent, robberies up 40 percent, violent crime up 20 percent. And that was a year, year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we now? Uh, unfortunately, I'd love to report to you that things were taking a, a turn, but they haven't. Uh, and it seems like things are getting worse. And, and um, you know, homicides are up once again. I mean, just yesterday, we had two double homicides here in the district uh, within hours of each other. Uh, robberies are up something like 50% over the past few years. Uh, armed carjackings are up 200%. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Uh, so it's, uh, unfortunately, it seems like we haven't quite hit the turning point of solving some of these problems around crime here in the district. Craig, what do you think is driving that? Uh, well, there's a lot of issues, but the main one is that we just don't have enough police officers here. Um, a lot of folks have left the agency for various reasons, uh, and it's very hard to recruit. As you know, it's yeah. a nationwide problem, but particularly here in the District of Columbia, we've been up against a city council who has passed a lot of very onerous, very difficult pieces of legislation that, uh, that impact our members' rights and their ability to go out and do their job. So um, very hard to recruit and very hard to retain, retain anyone uh, these days. Yeah, I want to come back to that recruiting and retention issue because that's one that we really want. I want to unpack it and let's talk about how it affects you uh, in, in the District of Columbia uh, personally. But before we get into that, you mentioned the city council and actions taken by the city council. Uh, right now, there's uh, there's action in Congress to, to address uh, the uniqueness of, of District of Columbia, whatever is approved by the council goes on to in America goes on to uh, on to 
Congress to, uh, to take action or not take action. And in this particular case, we have some, some legislation that really is detrimental to law enforcement. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the Revised Criminal Code Act and any other uh, actions that they've taken at or before Congress now um, to see if maybe we can get some, you know, some clarity on what it's going to do to the city and what it does and, and ultimately what needs to be done. Yeah, let me start by telling the listeners out there, the District of Columbia is a very unique place, uh, particularly as it comes to legislation. So our city council here uh, has what's called home rule, and um, they have autonomy. They're allowed to pass their own bills. However, under the Constitution, anything that the city council passes and that the mayor signs uh, still has to be approved by Congress. Now, 99.9% of the time, Congress does nothing, which means that these bills go into effect automatically after 30 days. Uh, however, on these very rare occasions, uh, Congress can intervene and tell the city council that the bills that they've passed are not appropriate, and they can uh, introduce what's called a disapproval resolution. And for this bill that you mentioned here, the Revised Criminal Code Act, that's exactly what's happened. So the city council um, passed a bill uh, back in December uh, called the Revised Criminal Code Act, and this bill uh, is a bill that's designed to update and modernize uh, the criminal code that exists in the District of Columbia. And they've been working on it for some time, and the vast majority of what's been done to it uh, has has robust agreement from all the stakeholders and all the parties involved. However, at kind of the 11th hour here, they decided to send the bill to a markup hearing and they added a lot of sort of what you would call restorative justice ideas to this. And uh, they reduced the maximum sentences for all of the violent crimes, murder, rape, robbery, armed carjacking, uh, burglary, even child sexual abuse. They, they reduced the maximum sentences by, about, sentences by about half across the board. The other thing they did was they eliminated all of the minimum sentences. Uh, the only minimum sentence that remains is for first degree murder, and that's only if you use a firearm. So I think we would be the only jurisdiction in the country to not have minimum sentences for pretty much every crime. Uh, in addition, they added the, um, and I can talk a little bit more about this later, but the right for any defendant charged with a misdemeanor to request a jury trial uh, and all kinds of provisions that allow people who have been convicted to crimes uh, to appeal to the judge to reduce those sentences. So uh, that bill, once it was passed in that iteration, became a very controversial subject here in the city, and, and citizens um, voiced those concerns to the council. However, they went unheard, uh, and the bill was passed in, in that version, and ultimately the mayor came out, Mayor Bowser here in the District of Columbia, uh, and she vetoed the bill, and she said exactly that, that why don't we pass the bill um, with all of the stuff that everyone can agree on, and then let's bring these sentencing guidelines and these other controversial issues in a separate bill and allow some public discussion and some public debate, and let's see if that's really what the citizens want us to do. So she vetoed the bill and sent it back to the council, uh, and the council decided to override that veto on a 12 to one vote. So uh, that bill then went to Congress, and it goes through this approval process that I already talked about. And uh, there were a few congressmen that stepped in and said, no, nope, we're, we're not going to approve this one. And so they introduced a disapproval resolution in the House, and that ultimately was debated on and voted on uh, about a week and a half ago at this point. And uh, all of the Republicans voted for it, which is to disapprove the bill. And 31 Democrats actually voted to disapprove the bill as well. 
And so now that bill is headed to the Senate uh, to see if the Senate also wants to disapprove it. And Senator Haggerty has actually introduced a resolution um, for disapproval on that as well. So once that happens, it'll go to the White House and the president will have to decide how he feels. But it's a unique circumstance here in the district. I don't think any other jurisdiction has to deal with getting their laws passed this way. Uh, but we've been, our organization has been uh, intimately involved because um, all of these policies that I just talked about really just uh, exacerbate this re revolving door criminal justice yeah. policy that you and I have been complaining about for years now. Yeah, you know, Greg, I've, I've, I've you know, served 36 years of law enforcement. I'm not sure how long you've been on the job, but uh, and <laughs> it helped me rationalize how anybody would think that this is somehow going to make our community safer. That's a great question. And um, one of the things we've heard from a lot of the council members is that uh, sentencing guidelines don't act as a deterrent to crime, and they cite to all these scientific studies. But uh, that's just not true. And you can look at sentencing guidelines from the U.S. Sentencing Commission, from the Parole Commission. There's, there's all kinds of data out there that shows that there's an inverse relationship between the uh, amount of time that someone is sentenced to and the recidivism rate, meaning that the, the larger the sentence, the less likely they are to commit yeah. more crimes and deterrent. i think the, it's yeah, the deterrent that's right and and i think that's kind of what our penal system is based on is is penalties right and right. and in society we've decided that if if you're convicted of committing one of these crimes that there's a commensurate penalty uh, that you need to pay for committing that crime and and the city council just does not seem to agree and i think that that's um I think a lot of city councils have, have sort of adopted these kind of philosophies about these restorative justice models all over the country. And, and I think in, in every city, they've seen the same result, which is uh, recidivism and increased crime. No doubt. And you know, I look at this and, you know, it's easy to point out things that we don't like. I, I see that all the time. You always have somebody that says, well, you know, I just don't care for this or, or this is not going to work. Are they offering any solutions? Because I, I still try to wrap my head around how you take away the, the deterrence to doing crime with some rationale that somehow it's going to make our community safer. What, what are they offering as, uh, as some solutions to this? Well, again, um, they, it seems like what they want to do is uh, invest money in social programs and um, a lot of these things that are designed to get in the community that are not police, like what they call violence interrupters uh, and, and other sort of government-funded programs that are somehow designed to interdict crime or uh, dissuade criminal activities before people become involved, uh, which it, maybe those things do work. But unfortunately, uh, what we've always said is that they're going to have to work in conjunction with law enforcement. You can't do away with law enforcement and replace them with these ideas. Well, exactly. You know, I, so I'm, I'm all for finding ways to, to, to better serve our communities. And, and there's no question. Look, everything lands at the feet of law enforcement. If there's a problem, blame it on law enforcement. Law enforcement's the one that's called to, we're, we're the first responders. We're the first ones to be able to touch people in, in you know, in, in, in any one of these instances. And, and there's a lot of frustration that comes with it. So I understand that part of it. We have a lot of work to do in our communities, and a whole lot of it, uh, the problems that exist in, in, in cities across this country are not directly related, related to law enforcement. They're a breakdown of a whole, a whole lot of failed promises uh, that have happened in communities. So the need to have these social programs are, are vitally important. We recognize that and support, support that, but it's not a one or the other. I mean, it really is all about a balance. I couldn't agree with you more. These are, you know, socioeconomic systemic issues that deal with, you education, know, economy, yeah. education, jobs, um, you know, access to healthcare, even right. there's all kinds of issues. And, and uh, you know, what, what I've always said is that 
you know, the, the police part of it is just a small slice of the pie, but yeah. we don't have the oversight of the jurisdiction to solve the problems that exist in schools yeah. or that exist in other government programs. So, you know, we're willing to work hand in hand with these officials to try to find ways that right. we can all be involved. But I think the approach that has been taken, particularly here in the District of Columbia, is we have to cut police out of the picture and find other ways to replace them instead of sort of embracing uh, the law enforcement model and saying, how, how can we, what can we add to this to make it better? And how can, what can they do? for us to make these other programs better yeah. and and that's what we've been trying to do for the past two years is convince them that um that we can all find a way to fix these problems yeah um, and and you know we're not afraid of accountability we're not afraid of oversight our officers go out uh by and large and, and do the right thing every day they're constitutional responsible professional policing and so if people want to look over our shoulder and watch what we're doing that's that's fine with us uh we're, we're more than uh they're more than welcome to do that we encourage well, them to do that and no question the uh the, the powers we have as law enforcement officers are directly related to that trust uh so and we got some work to do there's no question about it but that starts it starts with the meaningful discussion on finding solutions to problems it's not a an either or you know it's a, it really is a holistic approach to to fixing communities if you really want to downsize policing the way to do it is is to to fix the problems that create crime, and and decrease the need for it. And and, and I think that's what's missed along the way. Somehow, uh, there's a belief that we can eliminate law enforcement and these other things are going to take hold immediately, and we're going to have safe communities. And look across this country, you know, point to cities that have done that and tell me how what their crime rates are. Um, there has to be a little bit of balance here. And I, look, I'm, I'm very, very happy to see that cities across this country are recognizing, you know, we went through a period of time where there was a quick rush to do police reform. And we've seen some of the things that have been implemented in cities across this country. And they're starting to walk them back a little bit, realizing that maybe, maybe it was a bridge too far. Maybe it wasn't the best approach. And maybe there are other ways to get to what their desired outcome is. Um, so while other places are walking back on some of these, these things, Here's DC, a little late to the game, doing the same thing that others have realized that is not beneficial. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Pat. I mean, you look at places like Minneapolis, who were some of the first to jump at these yeah. police reform ideas and you know, defund their entire agency. Uh, you know, they're now um, adding all kinds of budgets to the police and and in increasing the size of their agency, increasing the breadth and the scope of their agency. You know, same things in Portland and Seattle and San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, these these are some very left leaning cities that have very progressive ideas, and and even they've, as you've said, have realized that some of these policies were a bridge too far. And when we try to point that out here to the city council uh it just falls on deaf ears and there just seemed that there seems to be a runaway locomotive here with the uh the police reform ideology yeah greg I, you know going through the last two years there's been a lot of discussion on here on the hill uh at the white house uh, through the administration in cities all across this country about police reform and uh if we look at it i can tell you that just working through it here in the house um early on Law enforcement was kind of void of their input on, on a lot of this stuff. And it made it difficult because there were there's some good things in, in a lot of these police reform bills that we could all wrap our arms around with. But there were there were some things that were so extreme that we really needed to weigh in on. And not having that ability to be part of that discussion really made it hard for us. Uh, you know, I, I think all of us in law enforcement, we're, we're dedicated to our profession. We recognize our profession is evolving. Uh, it, it reflects the, uh, the needs of the people within communities. At the same time, um, if we're not involved, you know, who knows policing better than police? 
I mean, they do it every single day. I mean, it is, it's what our job is. And if we're not involved in those discussions, it's kind of hard to, to have academics come up with, with something that they think is practical. And in reality, law enforcement has some input that could help fine-tune what we're talking about. We're all looking to improve the criminal justice system, every single one of us. How much discussion have, has the, uh, have you had, uh, the ability to be able to weigh in on these issues as the, as the rank-and-file leader uh, of, of law enforcement officers with law enforcement perspective on these radical, you know, really, really uh, you know, strong changes to the, to the act? Yeah, uh, the short answer is none, and and I, I you know I want to reinforce a point that you made, which is that you know, these, these are these are government run agencies, and you know they're never going to be perfect, and we should always be striving to do the best we can and to keep up with what it is that the citizens want. Right? We should be policing these communities the way the citizens want to be policed, uh, but in order to actually achieve that in an effective and responsible way, as you stated. Police need to be part of that discussion. And and I think what's happened, like, for example, here in the District of Columbia, they put together a police reform commission to determine what the legislation should look like. And this police reform commission was, was made up of a laundry list of every anti-police activist you could possibly imagine. Not a single sworn police officer, not a single retired police officer, nobody from the chief's office or the command staff. Uh, and, and there weren't even any academics in there that had a uh, sort of resume about uh, pro-police or pro-law enforcement. And so, of course, you're going to get out of that exactly what it is that came out of these bills, which is just anti-police rhetoric. Um, and, and I, I couldn't, I can't support your, your point more, which is that in, until you start including rank and file police officers at these tables in these conversations, you're going to continue generating bad legis legislation because you need to hear how these things are implemented on the ground when officers actually respond to a call and they have to abide by these policies, what that's going to look like in real life. And I don't think anybody wanted to hear from us. Um, it, you know, we, we set up dozens if not a hundred meetings with uh, various stakeholders within the city council within the government and every time we got you know crossed arms and rolled eyes and door slammed in our face that we weren't supposed to be part of the discussion so you know hopefully the tide is turning uh, and i think that again this uh, this action and this activity that's going on in congress is opening a lot of people's eyes about actually having police officers included in the discussion and so i, I hope that that changes i think there's a lot of common ground that we can build on Absolutely. Uh, I, I think people are just afraid that we might make too much logic in what we're doing. And look, you don't like us or not, uh, like what we have to say or not, I think there's evidence to prove that that needs to be part of it. Just simply look across this country, look at the cities that are that were so quick to go in these directions, and look at the crime rates. At some point, we need to recognize that, uh, that maybe this wasn't the best solution. There needs to be a, a holistic approach, one that we all sit down at the table and find some solutions to. I can tell you just here in Congress in the last two years, you know, although initially when they started passing some of the, uh, trying to push some of these things through, they didn't make it through both houses because that, for that very reason, because they didn't have the balance to it. And it, by, by allowing us to, to sit, those who would allow, me, allow us to sit and talk about these issues, we were able to, to give clarity on some, some, some of the things that were in these bills that, uh, that, that caused concern. So yeah, it's not, it doesn't hurt to, you know, to tell me the downside of, of having, having a meaningful discussion towards a common goal. I tell you, it's, uh, it, it's easy to stand up and say what, I, what you believe in, uh, but maybe you need to pause a little bit and look at the end result. I mean, we, we look at these numbers, you know, and, just, I mean, it, and this, this is not even accurate numbers, but you, you're looking at uh, homicides up 20%. You know, 20% uh, might seem like an impersonal number. You don't know it, but that 20% is a whole lot of families, a whole lot of lives that are forever changed because of crime.
Uh, so, you know, it's, we need to take the anonymity away from it and just realize we're talking about real people here. And these decisions we're making are affecting families. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, you look at each one of these stats and there's there's trauma behind that. There's that's somebody it. that's been robbed or sexually assaulted or lost a family member. Um, and and those those are the problems that we're there to solve. And and unfortunately, I think when we talk about these stats, uh, those those facts get lost. You know, law enforcement officers, they see that every day when they respond to the scene and they, they see the trauma that, that's occurred. Uh, you know, what I would say is that one thing we find frustrating when, when we go deal with folks in the city council is that, you know, now there's been some time that like we've been trying it their way. You know, in, in June of 2020, they passed all of these measures and they put them in place on an emergency basis. And now we're approaching three years of looking at exactly what their model is. And they increase crime. Yeah. And they've kowtowed to every possible, you know, whimsical fantasy of every police activist there was, and they've put it into place. And now that we have that empirical data, we know that it's an abject failure. And it's just very hard to get people to admit that and say, well, let's find a way out of this then because we tried it our way and that didn't work. And, um, you know, those are the frustrations we're up against, which is why, you know, now we're going to Congress and we're asking them to intervene because it doesn't seem yeah. like there's any level-headed folks left in the city council. You know, Greg, you talk about, about D.C. being a, a unique place. And it, it really is, you know, just our structure of government. But, uh, yeah, you know, we've got our viewers all across the country are probably watching us saying, you know what, I can relate to everything that you said because it, it, maybe it's happening in my city or a city close to me. And I understand all of these challenges. But why is this important to me? This is the District of Columbia. Why is it important to me? And that's because it is a unique city. And there are a lot of things here in District of Columbia that are much more than just a city with population in it. It is our seat of power. Um Talk a little bit about why uh, somebody who's maybe sitting in a in a core, uh, you know, in there in a squad car uh, out in you know Idaho would be interested in what's happening here in Washington D.C. Why is it important to them? That's a great question, Pat. And I think the answer is that this is the nation's capital, and this city belongs to everyone in this nation. This, as you said, is the seat of power. Um, there's history here. The uh, every elected official from everywhere, whether it's Idaho or Texas or, you know, right down the street in Virginia or Maryland, um, their offices are here and their staffs are here and, and they go to work every day at Congress and, um, you know, pass laws that affect everyone in the nation. And whether you're, uh, you work here or you live here or you're a visitor or a tourist or a foreigner who wants to come uh, visit the city and, and see what uh, democracy and the seat of power looks like, uh, it's important that this city is safe. And it's important that this city represents us as Americans. And this city shouldn't look like um, a crime-ridden, crime-infested, uh, terribly run city. It should look like a professional a uh, place that, that hosts the democracy that exists here. And unfortunately, the city council doesn't seem to think the same. And um, that's, that's, again, why, why we're down, up on the hill here asking them to intervene in some of these ridiculous policies. So it, it really falls on Congress at this point. Uh, and, and so with that, uh, talk, to our, talk to our members across this country, talk to our listeners, and what, did they, what can they do to help? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, the FOP has been phenomenal in this process and, and, and not just uh, you and your leadership team and, and your legislative team, but uh, the members, uh, rank and file members, and whether that's 
just your average dues-paying member or it's you know national trustee or state uh, state president. Uh, they have done a phenomenal amount of work on this. Uh, you know, you've given us the opportunity to get the information in front of them. And what they've done is they've reached out to their elected representatives, whether that's their congressmen or their senators, and they've sent letters and they've got on the phone and they've set up meetings with them and they've told them, hey, look, uh, our brothers and sisters over there in the District of Columbia need your help and you need to take a look at the situation. And that's opened a lot of doors for us. As a matter of fact, my, uh, there's been a few times my phone has rang for people that we haven't reached out to, and they've said, you know, this is Congressman so-and-so's office, and, and we need to talk to you about this. And um, so I, I can't thank the, the FOP and the members of the FOP enough for, for getting us that sort of cloud, but um, there's more work to be done. So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you know, I encourage you to, to reach out to your state representatives or your, your congressmen or your senators uh, and let them know that this um, House uh, Joint Resolution 26, as they call it, um, that they need to take a good, strong look at that because it's a real issue for law enforcement. And there's a vote coming up rather soon, correct? It has to be. Uh, there's a deadline. What is the deadline that falls? I mean, I know there are multiple things here, but with the most recent, the closest deadline that we have that we might have to shoot for, what is? Yeah. Uh, so right now, the bill that we're discussing, the, the Revised Criminal Code Act, the disapproval resolution is in, in front of the Senate. Uh, from what we understand, the, the likely the week of March 6th, um, is there's going to be some debate and, and a vote on that. And so uh, as your members pull up this uh, podcast and they listen to that, hopefully they can reach out to their senators and let them know that this is an important issue for us and for law enforcement so there's really no time to waste. No we, time we, to waste we need, at all. Yeah. We need our we need our listeners to contact their senator and let them know how they feel about the, about this 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 legislation. Absolutely, Pat. Yeah, and and for for those uh, folks out there, um, the other thing I would let you know is is as as you mentioned that this is the kind of thing that's happened in a lot of cities, right? You can name almost every major city, and there's similar problems. Um, the District of Columbia is the only city that Congress can look at and say, nope, not here. We're not doing that here. And and frankly, I think that if they're able to do this, I think it will send some shockwaves through uh, all these municipalities that are deciding to pass these bills and pass these pieces of legislation that impact our members, that prevent them from doing their job, that, that take away their due process rights, that take away their ability to defend themselves, uh, that demonize them. And I think if they can do it here in the District of Columbia, I think that that will help our members who are in these other areas that are fighting the same battles. I think they can point to this location and say, hey, look, they got it right here when Congress stepped in. Let's do the yeah. same. You know, I want to I want to change channels, you know, change directions just a little bit. And I want to talk about staffing. You know, we have a problem across this country where uh, the best and the brightest just aren't stepping up and taking this job. I call it an existential threat because it is not something we're going to fix overnight. I mean, it really, there is so much damage done uh, in the last two, two and a half years in law enforcement to the extent where people are leaving our profession. Uh, for a number of reasons. You know, they're retiring because they're eligible to retire. People are leaving because they can find more stable jobs other places. And, uh, you know, just uh, all of these factors together uh, are, are created such a void in our profession across this across the country, not just here in D.C. Uh, and then at the same time, our best and brightest just aren't stepping up because they have done so much damage. You know, the media and some politicians are more concerned in the problem than they are in any type of solution. It caused so much problems to our profession that people aren't stepping up for it. So let's talk about how that affects Metropolitan Police 
Metropolitan Police Department. And and what do you see on Horizon? Where are you now on staffing? What do you see? Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? What are your suggestions that need to be done in order to be able to make the job more attractive here in D.C. So that you can have the proper staff levels to, to protect the community? It, yeah, Pat, th- this is probably one of the most striking and serious issues that I think we have in law enforcement uh, nationwide. Uh, and I know you know that better than anyone else. But here in the District of Columbia, it has... Um, it's absolutely catastrophic. Uh, and let me put a finer point on that. Since the beginning of 2020, uh, our agency has lost uh, just under 1,200 police officers. 1,200 police officers. That's about a third of our police department. And we've only been able to replace uh, about 600 of them. And, uh, you know, the chief of police just testified last week in an oversight hearing in city council saying that, that that's right, that we're short 600 police officers here in the District of Columbia. And that, and that is an absolutely cataclysmic number of officers not to have. And uh, what I think is even most alarming about that is you take those 1,200 cops and almost 45% of them have resigned. These aren't even, this isn't even a retirement bubble or people retiring earlier than they normally are. These are cops that are just turning in their gun and badge and walking away. And as you said, a lot of them are walking away from law enforcement in general. It's not even just that some neighboring agency has better pay or, or better working conditions. A lot of these folks are saying that I, they don't they don't want to be involved in law enforcement. And I think the damage that you talked about that's been done over the past two or three years is, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's going to take a decade or more for us to get past. Uh, and, you know, I think you ask, like, what, what do we do to get past it? And, you know, my answer is that we have to start treating these employees, these folks um, in a way that, that respects what they do, that respects the risks they take, that, re- that respects how much effort they put into trying to help and, and, uh, and save these communities from, from the crime and violence that exists there. And, and once we start doing that, I think that's what opens the door to bring in those recruits that you talked about, the best and brightest. Um, you know, th- this isn't a high paying job. This isn't the kind of job that people are going to get rich at. Uh, so you, re- you really have to um, have an environment that supports the employees, that protects the employees, uh, and that encourages them to go out and do their job in, in a way that's effective. And it seems like the, the approach that's been taken over the past two or three years is just that if you're a police officer, you're probably up to no good, and we need to have all of these policies and legislation in place that penalizes you for even just being a police officer. Yeah. And um, you know what I tell the city council members when I meet with them is, w- would you work under these rules? I mean, the best cops that we have who you know, never brush up against the disciplinary system have walked away just because of the fact that some of yeah. these rights and protections, um, you know, have been eliminated. You know, I, I, so I think everybody, I don't care what profession they're in. But certainly law enforcement is, you know, I use them as an example here because that's what we're talking about. But I think everybody likes to think or needs to, to feel two things. And what they do is important. And two, that they're appreciated for doing it. And law enforcement officers, it's kind of hard to feel like they're appreciated for what they're doing after all of the demonization that's happened in law enforcement in the last two years. And, and we're seeing the results of that. You know, I did, a, I, did a, I did a study back when I was in college, and it's dated now. But, uh, but I think that the data is probably just as, as valid as it was before. People who get into law enforcement they get in, didn't get into law enforcement because they saw a commercial on TV. Or they saw an ad in a newspaper or a slick magazine, you know, colorful ad in a magazine. They got in because people within law enforcement recruited them into this profession. And so now we find ourselves in a position where our recruiters, 
You know, the people that we depend on, if in, in my study, it was over 80% of people I got into law enforcement got in because of those connections or because of somebody showed an interest with them and, and said, you know, I think you have the qualities that you have thought about coming, sign up and, and, and get, you know, uh, go to the academy. Um, how many do you think are out there? If they don't feel appreciated and they don't, you know, they don't feel what they do, what they do is important and recognized and, and you know, and, and appreciated. How many do you think are out there trying to trying to get law enforcement or you know, get people to come into this profession? And I think that's where we see this deficit. Uh, you know, why do we not have more recruits? Well, I think it's directly related to the fact that we take away the initiative of those our best recruiters. So I would argue that it's this is not really a retention problem, a recruiting retention problem. It's a retention and recruiting problem. We can't fix the recruiting problem until we fix the retention problem. The people who are here need to feel like they're appreciated and what they do is important. And until we get that, we're not going to we're not going to find our way past this. Would you like to add any to that? Or yeah, your thoughts? I, I, Pat, I think that's absolutely right. And um, I, you know, our officers, you, you hear them talking about it that you know they're encouraging other people or, or discouraging other yeah. people to come here because of these complaints that they have about um, you know how difficult this environment is to be an employee here. Uh, you see it online. I mean, you look in these these hiring forums. There's people that are just constantly dogging the department and complaining about the situations that they're in. And, and I think anybody who who sort of glances at that is going to say, "Well, I don't I don't want to work here." And and like you said, people are telling their their relatives, their friends their friends or relatives so like, hey you should normally they would say hey you should come here this is a great place to work right. i think they're telling them the not only are they not telling them that i think they're not telling them the opposite don't work here don't come work here and yeah. i think this this is happening as you said in, in, in all of these major cities and, and other areas that are having these problems and if you can't stop this the hemorrhaging part of it which is officers leaving then it, it really doesn't matter how many people you can hire because one thing i've always said is that even if you could exchange officers one for one one out the door one comes in you're replacing your department every four or five years with every single member and so you lose uh, you have this brain drain you lose a lot of this institutional knowledge you know the skill sets that can't be put in a general order that you know how to talk to people and how to to understand what's going on in your neighborhood you know these things um they're they're um you know, they're perishable skills. Yeah. And if you don't have people that are constantly retraining the new, the new officers that come in, you're going to lose those skills permanently. And I think that's one thing that we're starting to see. Greg, if we, if we flipped a switch today and for every vacant position we had here in your department or any department across this country, and everybody loves the police again, and you have a hundred people deep for every open position and we're able to get qualified candidates that come in to this profession. By the time they hired, put through the Academy, put through field training we're probably looking five plus years before they become an effective officer so even if we were you know you talked about you know one for one you know replenishing a department every five years well look at what damage that does too who's uh where where is that you know you talked about the brain drain uh the institutional knowledge that goes out the door who's training you know the next wave of law enforcement. There are there are eight hundred thousand men and women across this country that show up every single day. They put on a badge, they strap on a gun, and they go in and protect their communities. And yet we're being defined by a small handful of incidents across this country that are causing good people to leave this job. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to fix this overnight. I, I yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. If um even if we were able to turn things around 180 degrees today, 
I still think you're looking at a five to 10 year arc before yeah. you can start to see uh, a, a real significant or, or a return to normal in law enforcement, if you will. Uh, I think the damage that's been done is, is deep. These are deep wounds and they're, they're going to take a real long time. Um, and, you know, luckily there's a lot of folks uh, that are working to do this. It seems like, you know, there's been times where I think folks are tempted to give up and just, just throw in the towel and say, you know what, this is what it is now. But, you know, you know, thankfully for the FOP and, and folks on your team, um, I know here in DC that there's a lot of folks that are working very hard to try to make sure that, that we don't lose this permanently. Uh, and so hopefully those efforts work. Well, Greg, I, I appreciate you you coming in and spending some time with us to talk about these really important issues. And, uh, you know, I, before we, before we wrap it up one more time, Let's tell our listeners and viewers what we need them to do and why they should not wait, why, why there's a sense of urgency here uh, about contacting their members of the Senate. Yeah, absolutely. So again, uh, you know, these bills, these police reform bills, these criminal code reform bills that are coming out of city council, uh, Congress has taken them up on what's called a disapproval resolution, which is to completely torpedo these bills and scuttle them. Uh, which would cause the city council to go back to the drawing board to redraft these. And, and hopefully they'd be redrafted in a much more uh, acceptable and common sense. In an inclusive way. Inclusive as, as well, yeah. Uh, but in order to get those disapproval resolutions to pass, uh, they have to pass the House, they have to pass the Senate, and they also have to get signed by the president like any other federal bill. So uh, for those folks that are out there listening, I really encourage you to contact your your FOP state representatives, your state trustees, and contact your your um, government representatives, your, your congressmen and your senators, uh, and let them know. And, and if anybody has any questions or would like any further documentation, you contact me directly at, at G Pemberton at dcpoliceunion.com. Uh, and we'll be happy to send you an entire packet of, of how you can help this effort. Well, Greg, uh, thank you. Thank you for your work. Look, I, I've watched you for the last three years. Uh, it's some of the most difficult times in, in our profession and, and the way that you've managed to these uh, issues in D.C. and been part of a solution uh, has been uh, has been inspiring. So thank you for the hard work that you do for the men and women here in, in D.C. In, in these very difficult times and, and keep up the great work and, and know that we're here. And to our, our viewers and our listeners, now, there you have it. I mean, we need some help. We need some help, and we need it immediately. I need you to reach out to your senators and ask them to please uh, to, to disapprove this bill that, that's before the Senate of, the, of this act. And uh, let's go back to the drawing board with law enforcement uh, involvement and find some, some solutions that, uh, that are common sense solutions that, that, that we all can embrace and, 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 and get towards the, the common goal. So thanks for tuning in to The Blue View uh, and uh, you know, where we talk about the issues that are important to the men and women who suit up and show up every day in communities across America. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.